But this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8. So why don't you open your Bibles there. We're continuing our series through Matthew's gospel. It's a series we're calling King and Kingdom. Now, for the most part, we live in a capitalistic free market economy, right? Or at least for the, at least for the time being, we do. And, and of course, in a capitalistic culture, the customer is king. The, the consumer is sovereign. And we operate this way in all spheres of our life. We do it reflexively. We don't even think about it. So whether you're buying a home, you're choosing a college, you're purchasing a car, you're shopping at Publix, you're investing in mutual funds, we're just sort of accustomed to looking, out of all, looking at all of our options, weighing the pros and cons, deciding what we want to do, and then voting with our wallets or voting with our participation or signing up. In other words, we're the boss. We make the decisions around here. Excuse me. Um, well, our culture, whether we think about it or not, kind of operates this way spiritually. You see, think about it. In our culture, we have a smorgasbord. I've been waiting all, all year to say that in a sermon. We have a smorgasbord of, of spiritualities and religions galore. And we're sort of taught inflexibly that it's our job as, as consumers to evaluate and look at all of them, non-judgmentally, of course, and to sort of pick the spirituality that works best for us. For, for whatever phase of life you're in, what are your needs, what are your desires, what's going to work for you at that particular time, understanding you can always change it, right? You can always pivot and take a different direction. But, but regardless, the most important factor, of course, in choosing a spirituality is you. Your needs, your wants, your preferences. Well, Jesus, in our passage this morning, I hate to break it to you, is going to turn all of that upside down. That's what Jesus does, right? Remember, as we've been making this journey through Matthew's gospel, we are in the second year of Jesus' ministry. And scholars call this the year of popularity. This is, Jesus has just preached his greatest sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached, Sermon on the Mount. We spent several months in that text. And now, as we heard last week, thousands are following him. He spoke with authority, and now he begins to act with authority. He heals. He casts out demons. He does supernatural works. And everyone is sort of gathering around this man and saying, who is he? Who can speak with such authority? Who can act with such authority. They're sort of caught up in the fervor. But here in Matthew, things take a pivot. Because this is really where, for the first time, people have to decide. Is Jesus going to be a spectacle? Is he going to be a show? Or am I actually going to follow him? Am I actually going to attach myself to him? Am I going to entrust my life to him? And Jesus sort of flips all of this on its head for us by showing us the true nature of Christian discipleship. What does it mean, really, to follow Jesus? And that's where we're going to be this morning in Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be reading just a short passage, verses 18 through 22. And if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's word this morning. 
Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Let's pray. Father, in a a culture that makes spirituality seem easy and consumeristic and self-centered, Lord, you give us a whole new paradigm in this text. What it means to follow you, what it means to be a disciple. And so, Father, break through whatever ambiguity or barriers or haze that our cultural air throws up to confuse us, to disorient us, and give us clarity about who we are, but most importantly, about who you are. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please take your seats. Matthew begins verse 18 with kind of what seems like a throwaway line. Look at, look at it, what it says. It says, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Remember, the gospel writers don't do random. They don't just throw insignificant details out there just for the sake of it. These are precious words. And every one counts. And this signals something to us. Because when you follow the, the narrative down through um, Matthew's um, chapter 8 here, you'll notice in verse 28, we won't turn there, but you can look, they come to the region of, Gadar, of Gadarnes, okay? Now, Gadarnes was on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, So if the northern part of the Sea of Galilee was Jewish territory, the eastern part of the Sea of Galilee was for the Gentiles. This was the Decapolis. This was a hodgepodge. This was a cosmopolitan of of all sorts of different people. And this is what Matthew is signaling to us. Matthew is showing us that Jesus is leaving his home territory. Jesus is leaving the Jews on a new mission to go minister to the Gentiles. And that's important because it leaves everyone in the crowd with a decision. And the decision simply is this. Is this man merely a spectacle, a sideshow? Is he here for entertainment purposes? Is he here to just kind of do miracles and supernatural things or inspire me with his teaching? Or am I actually going to follow him? Am I actually going to entrust my life to him? And so as Jesus is getting in this boat with his disciples and there's other folks undoubtedly following along, this is the choice that these folks are faced with. Enter two men. And now each of these men have a declaration of sorts to follow Jesus. And as we Hear it on first glance, first blush. They seem like reasonable propositions. 
And of course, this is how it worked in ancient Israel, right? The student chose the rabbi. You decided what college sports team you were going to cast your lot with, right? But instead of interviewing him, very interesting, Jesus flips this around and he interviews them. And in the process, we are going to learn two things about Christian discipleship this morning. And these are going to be our two points. Number one, following Jesus will cost you everything. But, and this is point number two, but not following him will too. So here is the the title, and I'm thankful to, to John MacArthur for some inspiration here. Are you the kind of disciple, get ready for it, that Jesus rejects? Now that's provocative. That hopefully has gotten your attention. Because we tend to think about these things in all the opposite sorts of ways. But as we're going to see, Jesus, what he says is because he loves us and he wants us to have clarity about who we are and who he is. So let's jump in. Following Jesus will cost you everything. Look at verse 19. Participant or prospective disciple number one. And a scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, if you're part of Jesus's entourage, if you're one of his disciples, your first instinct is going to be, Jesus, we have one on the hook. Jesus, reel him in. Do you realize who this is? Because after all, who were the people who hated Jesus the most? The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, those who held the places of standing, who interpreted Torah, who were sort of in control of all aspects of spiritual and civil life in Israel. And of course, these men hated Jesus because Jesus told it like it was. Jesus said, you're doing the right things, but for the wrong reasons. You're hypocrites. Your hearts are corrupt. And because of this, they hated him. They despised him. They plotted against him, and they wanted to kill him, of course, which they eventually did. So you can imagine everyone's shock and surprise, right? It's like the the captain of the football team in your high school who's the wildest partier in high school all of a sudden coming to Jesus. And everybody's like, sign this guy up. Don't you know who this is, Jesus? This is a mover and a shaker. He has got a social media platform you would not believe. He has access to the elites. He's in the room where it happens. He is the opinion shaper. What an opportunity, right? Press him into service. By all means, get him up front. And if you have a Christian concert you want to host, let him share his testimony by all means, right? That's that's what we do, right? that's, That's the way we treat celebrity. That's the way we treat those who have platforms and influence, but not Jesus. Listen to what he says. Let's go back to the text. Scribe says, sign me up. And Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Sometimes Jesus can just be confounding, right? Is that a yes or a no, Jesus? What, give it to, you know, do I get to be a part of the team here? In the Sermon on the Mount, remember, we learned that 
people, humans, those of us with souls, have infinite more value than animals or birds or other creatures that God has created. Remember Jesus' point, if I provide for them, of course I'm going to be providing for you. But here, Jesus says something, it's not different, it's just a qualifier. And here's what Jesus is saying. Yes, it's true, I'll provide all of your needs. But even as meager as a hole in the ground or a nest is for a bird, those animals have more of a place in this world than those who follow me. Now, in Jesus' case, this idea of not having a, a place to lay your head, oftentimes that was true for Jesus. That wasn't simply hyperbole. Remember, he left home in Nazareth and he traveled with his disciples. He never owned a home that we know of. He never had his own place. Let's think about this. After you've been gone for a long time, you've traveled a bunch, you are just desperate to, to fly back and what? Go home. Lay your head on your own pillow, sleep in your own bed. Jesus never really had that experience. He would stay with friends like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He had his home base in Capernaum, probably living with one of the families of one of his disciples. When we were in Israel a number of years ago as a, doing a church trip, we, we visited this cave on the outskirts of Jerusalem where church tradition history indicates that it was the place Jesus and his disciples hung out and slept. Because think about this. They would minister all day in Jerusalem sometimes, but where would they go at night? To the cave. So, so we know this wasn't just hyperbole, but of course there's a deeper spiritual meaning to what Jesus is saying here about foxes and birds. And it's simple, it's straightforward. That's what you have to love about the teaching of Jesus. It's not complicated. I think you, you probably anticipate it. And it's simply this. Four Oaks, this world is not your home. You are, and I am, if we are followers of Christ, spiritual exiles. We are, in a spiritual sense, not meant to be comfortable in this world, in this life. We are ambassadors. We are exiles. We are traveling through. This is a very temporary stop. And so Jesus is simply saying, if you're looking for someone or something just to kind of make your life easier or more comfortable or less hostile, you know, just so, just so that I won't stand out or my kids won't stand out, that we can just sort of kind of blend in and just sort of sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on top of that. Jesus says, don't follow me. Don't follow me. You first have to count the cost. And this is what Paul is referring to in 2 Timothy 3 when he says this, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And that's such a hard line for us to wrap our arms around, isn't it? Because we want it all. We, we, we want to be loved, accepted, valued, treasured, comforted, and have Jesus at the end of it. 
You know, we oftentimes reflect this even in the way we talk to people if we're trying to share the gospel with them about Christ. We, we can be tempted to say things, something like this, accept Jesus and, and you'll still be good. You'll still be you. You may, may make a little tweak here, a little tweak there, but he's actually going to make your life better. Now, there's just enough truth in that to be really dangerous, right? Your life will be infinitely better, eternally better. You will have forgiveness of sins. You will have communion with the holy God. You will have a clear conscience. You will have a purpose and a mission for life on all of those things. Amen. But Jesus says the things that the world typically values, things like power, fame, popularity, material goods, those are not compatible with the kingdom of God. I didn't come to give you simply a slightly more sanctified version of your already worldly self. Let me just say this, we, we do people, parents, I'll say this about you and your kids, I'll say it about our friendships, relationships, our next door neighbors, we don't do people any favors when we hold out the blessings of Christ, but don't mention the cost. You see, when the storms and trials and disappointments come, and they will, and they will, people are not prepared and they will walk away sad, discouraged, disillusioned, angry. You've heard me say this before, but behind every person who has a profession of faith and falls away, behind every sort of unhealthy deconstruction or false profession of faith, and we all know those people, we all might be living in that place right now, behind all of those things ultimately, typically, is a is some sort of deep disappointment with God. God, I, I didn't know it was going to be like this. When, when you said no servant is greater than his master, I didn't know that involved suffering. I didn't know that meant making difficult relational choices. I didn't know that meant sacrifice. I didn't know that means oftentimes being misunderstood by the people I'm trying to impress the most. This is what Paul speaks to when he says Demas. Remember, Demas was his trusted brother in his apostolic band. And Paul, at the end of his life, says, even Demas has fallen away. He's deserted me. Why? Because he's in love with the present world. He had not counted the cost. And as the scriptures show over and over again, it doesn't matter what your proximity is to spiritual people. It doesn't matter what your heritage is, your tradition, your background, as important as all of those things can be in their proper place. But if you haven't counted the cost, Jesus says, don't, don't follow me. Don't follow me. Because as your master, as your servant, I will lead you down a path of everlasting joy. But you will come to know me in my sufferings. Matthew 13, which we'll get to here in a few months. Listen to this parable. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. 
yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This is the scribe. He's, he's, he's been a part of the fervor. He, he's signed a pledge card. He's come down the aisle. He's, he said, I, I'm ready to go. Just tell me where to go. Interestingly, how does the scribe refer to, to Jesus? He calls him what? Teacher. Now that's an interesting word. It's an argument from silence, but you can make the, the point that here he's, he's recognizing, I love this guy. He has so much to offer. I'd love to be a part of his entourage. But Lord, hmm, that's, that's a whole different matter entirely. Because we see this over and over in the Gospel of John. Remember, we preached through this, this gospel a number of years ago, that, that John talks about a belief, in quotes, that is not really a belief. That is not biblical belief or a disciple that's not truly a disciple. And so there's the very famous passage in John chapter 2 where just like this, people are flocking to Jesus. They're coming around him. They want to touch the hem of his garment. They want to be close to the action. And here's what John chapter 2 says. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in him, in his name, when they saw the signs that he was doing. This is the scribe. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. What does that mean? He knew what was in their hearts. They weren't there to follow. They were just there to get a little bit of the buzz, a little bit of the action. Because it's, it's an important point to remember, and all of us need to, to grab hold of this. Discipleship is not an optional add-on to the Christian faith. Discipleship is the Christian faith. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. To be a Christian is to follow Jesus. It's axiomatic. There's no such thing as a follower or a Christian, that, that's what the word Christian means, a follower of Christ, who is not also a disciple. In other words, here, I'm trying to figure out different ways to say this. You can't separate the saving activity of Jesus from the ruling activity. In other words... He can't be your savior if he's not also your Lord. Those two things always go together. And all sorts of mischief and heretical ideas, which is not the point of this sermon, can emerge when you try to separate those two things. Legalism on one hand, antinomianism on the other hand, but they are always to be bound. Jesus says, oh, I've got blessings for you, eternal blessings forevermore. But you got to follow me. You've got to entrust yourself to me, all, all of you, every aspect of you. See, I think this idea of authority and kingship is what Jesus is getting at when he refers himself to the Son of Man. Look, look, look back at the text for a second. He does his foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Do you realize that the phrase Son of Man? is the most used expression that Jesus uses to refer to himself. So, so it's not Christ, it's not Messiah, it's not prophet, it's the Son of Man. Now in that culture, the Son of Man, that phrase, was a generic one, just simply meant man or human or common person. And certainly Jesus was that. 
And he used that, I think, as part of his self-identifying with us as his people. That he has come to live the life we couldn't live. He has come to, to tread the way of humbleness and humility. But boy, there is something else bound up in that title. It's, it's, it's a double entrenda. It, 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 it masks something that did not become explicitly clear until the very end. Because there is another way the son, that word son of man is used in the scripture. Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is why at the trial of Jesus, when the high priest says, who are you? And Jesus quotes Daniel 7 and says, I am the son of man. To, what, to which what happens? The high priest tears his robes. He says, this man has committed blasphemy. When he, when he was saying he was the son of man, we didn't know he meant he was this son of man. See, what is Jesus saying? Yes, I am lowly. Yes, I am a servant. But I am king. And to you, scribe, I'm not merely a teacher, although I'm a teacher. I am Lord. I am the sovereign God, which means when you follow me, when you entrust yourself to me and place your faith in me, I ask all of you. Because it's a high cost. It's, a, it's an incredibly high cost. In fact, it might in this life cost you everything. Which brings us to our second point, which is simply this. But not following him will cost you everything too. Let's look at disciple number two, who comes with an entirely different agenda, entirely set, different set of problems. He comes to Jesus with what seems an eminently reasonable request. First of all, notice he addresses him as Lord. So this man, in his own mind, is here to do business. He, he's, he's here to count the cost. And here's essentially what he says, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust myself to you. But I have to attend to one small matter. And, here, and here, here's the matter. See, my father has died, and I need to go handle the funeral arrangements. I need to take care of this little bit of business, but I'll be right back, and I'll be glad to join you somewhere on the other side over at the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's, that's what he says. To which Jesus provides, maybe, quite possibly, probably one of the most insensitive pastoral remarks ever uttered. If you've been around here, this doesn't surprise you, right? Which he says something to this effect, oh, no, 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 I want you to follow me right now, this very moment. In fact, let someone else bury your father. Now, this is an irreverent sort of illustration, but just God's grace, go with it, all right? 
I hear this story, it reminds me of, of Chevy Chase and National Lampoon Vacation, okay? N not your family movie, okay? Don't watch this unless it's on TBS, the edited version, right? Remember, they took grandma with them because they were journeying to where? Wally World. And this trip was so important that even when grandma, how can we say this, assumed room temperature before the end of the trip, she passed away. This trip was so important, what did they do? They strapped grandma on top of the station wagon and kept on going, all right? Maybe you ought to watch it, but the edited version, right? Is that what you're saying, Jesus? What you're saying sounds kind of rude and insensitive. All right, I, is, is this right? Can this be true? Because again, this is where it's helpful to know some background to the original language. Let, the bit, um, let me bury my father is actually a euphemism. And what it means is not that my father has died. It actually means my father is still alive. Now, he's getting long in the tooth, and he's aging. But see, I'm the oldest son, and I have responsibility for his estate. I have to handle his affairs. So, so Jesus, I will circle around back to you, but not until my father passes. You see... Before I can commit and follow, I have some family responsibilities. I have to get his affairs in order. I have to get my family affairs in order. I've got responsibilities. I've got mouths to feed, Jesus. And quietly, and let's not forget the inheritance, right? If I leave now, that goes to my idiot younger brother, right? And that can't happen. You see the, see the question? You see the issue? Interesting how Jesus responds to this. He doesn't bargain. He just simply says, follow me now. Because when we delay in our discipleship, when we delay at a point of Christian obedience, what are we saying? We're saying, Jesus, oh, I get it, I get it, this is important. Jesus, I, I get there's a lot of benefits from this. Jesus, I, I know this is going to be helpful and useful and my life will have better purpose, et cetera. But I mean, we don't say this, but, but you're not vital. You're not indispensable. But Jesus says, no, when I call you, there's two things primarily in mind, right? Priority and immediacy. Matthew 16, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, boy, we need to hear verse 25. Just pray that God will just implant it in your soul. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, if you're delaying following Jesus right now, there's something deeper going on in your heart, right, or my heart. What you're really saying functionally is, Pastor Paul, there's just something that's more important. There's something that, that I just need to attend to. I need to experience. I need to, to move forward in before I can make that sort of life-claiming decision. Pastor Paul, that's going to make a huge stake. That's going to stake a huge claim. Let me just ask you this question. What is the equivalent for you 
in your own life of burying your own father? What's that thing for you? We all have one. Maybe it's a relationship you're holding on to you know you shouldn't. Or it's your finances. Or maybe your career. Pastor Paul, if I, if, if I say yes to Jesus, I mean, if I go follow him with my whole heart, that's going to mean something. There's going to be a financial component to it. Maybe it's going to make a claim on your sex life. Maybe, maybe you're like, hey, I... I'm young and I'm free and I want to travel and I want to be out there in the world. What's the equivalent for you? As we head into the fall season, and I want to say this really, you know, hopefully over the 26 years we've all been together, some of us, there's enough pastoral goodwill chips for me to say this and for you to know that I love you. But as we're at least there's one person with me. As we head into this fall season, let me just, it's just an observation. What is, for us, well-respected people on the northeast side of town, what's the biggest obstacle to us and for our families for following Jesus? And I, as I've observed, I think that answer is sometimes it's the family itself. You see, Oftentimes we're deceived into thinking that what's best for our kids, what's best for our family, what's, what's, what's going to make them flourish and bring fruit to their life is, some, is something out there. It's some, sort of, it's some sort of experience, it's some sort of opportunity. And oftentimes we find ourselves making compromises about what Jesus says it means to be a part of the family of God. That sometimes we, we're, we're, we're under this misconception that we can be healthy, well-adjusted, our kids won't be social outcasts or weirdos, and the best way to do that is to find a life away from the church, away from accountability structures, away from relationships. Now let me, here we go. Not one time have I ever heard a family say that if they were do, to do it all over again, they wish they had just spent more time playing travel sports. I'm serious. These are the kinds of things we think we're blessing our children by exposing them to these different experiences. But we've just shown them that the cost for following Jesus is just not that high. And they can have everything of the world has to offer until, now listen, it doesn't. Because it always will always let you down. All of us are invested in something that Jesus says is fading away. If you go back to the text for a second, Jesus says something very interesting. He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, what does that mean? It's also a play on words. Here's what he means. Listen, would-be disciple. The people back home have invested themselves in a system that's fading. That's what spiritually, pe spiritually dead people do. They invest themselves into things that don't last, things that, don't, that, are, that aren't eternal. 
things that are going to fade away. So if you go back there and cast your lot there, you're going to be dead and you don't even know it. See, all of us as disciples of Christ, as followers of Christ, have to come to terms with the fact that Jesus calls us towards a heavenly investment. He calls us towards an eternal kingdom. And that means shepherding all of our lives to that great reality. As my friend Dave Harvey said, who used to pastor here, he said, the biggest task for us as Christians is not going to be how this year, how you focus on the family. It's going to be how you focus your family and what you are shepherding and leading them to of mission, community, discipleship, and the gospel. Matthew 10 says this, whoever loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, Jesus tells us all this for this reason. He loves you. He loves me. He loves us. He doesn't want us to be deceived about the nature of what true Christian discipleship is. He doesn't want us to be deceived about who we are in relationship to Jesus. And Jesus is not speaking from the ivory tower here. Because guess what? It cost Jesus everything in order to bring you and me into gracious relationship with him. What does Paul tell us? Jesus did not consider equality God, with God something to be held on to, but he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Je Jesus didn't hold on to those things. He relinquished them. He gave up everything to die on a cross. He received the judgment and wrath of God that was rightly aimed towards us so that you and I can know him. Let me just say this morning, the most important thing you can take from this text is not what you've done. You've heard me say this a million times. It's what you do next. You see, each of these men were faced with a crossroads, with a decision. Isn't it interesting? We don't know what they did. We don't know what they did. Did the scribe say, whoa, I'm ready to lay it all down, Jesus? Did, did, did the man say, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm, you are the most important thing in my life. I'm going to follow you today. We, we, we don't know. And I think that's by design. Because the point here this morning is what will you do? And you may say, well, Pastor Paul, I... There have been times that I have not counted the cost. I have not been a wholehearted disciple. I haven't given it all to him. What does Jesus say to you? Come. <laughs> That's the beauty of the gospel. He says, come. Don't wait. Don't tarry. Don't overanalyze. Don't let your guilt, don't let your regret hold you back. Don't let your pride and self-sufficiency hold you back either. But I am here. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden in what? I will give you rest. That's the gospel. 
That's why we end the service by coming to the table to remind ourselves that there is always, 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 as long as there's breath in this life, mercy and grace from Jesus to you to help you in your time of need. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. And as you spend just a moment or two reflecting on God's word and the way that he's speaking to you, ask you to prepare your hearts to come to the table. And as you do that, invite our leaders to come forward to serve the elements.